This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. I found her to be very creative, very intelligent, and very tolerant. She had her own mother move in and she tended to her, plus she held a job and had a son at home all at the same time. She was very active in her church. Sometimes on the way to church, I would be following behind her, and I would watch Marion break and swerve to miss a bird in the road. That was a description I got about Marion Fisher, Jeanette's mother. When I first began researching this case and learned that Jeanette's mother was the clerk and treasurer of Reed City at the time of her daughter's murder, I felt like I needed to look into whether that had anything to do with her daughter's death. Following the money is often important in criminal investigations, and I wanted to know if there was anything going on with the city that would have involved money. I learned that there was. There was an embezzlement scandal brewing in the city offices, and a few people were pointing the finger at Marion. In fact, I'm told that one of those fingers was being pointed by at least one city police officer. I was told by multiple sources that most of the city PD was pretty miserable around this time, and that wasn't just reflected in the Proposal B mudslinging. I was told that the city police didn't like the fact that the state police were doing their dispatching. City and state police seemed to have a very fragile relationship at this point in Reed City's history. The first thing I did to get a sense of what was going on in Reed City was devour three years' worth of city council meeting minutes. Marion Fisher's handwriting is at the top of each one, where she marked them as being indexed. Each set of monthly minutes bears her signature. Being able to get an up-close look at her day-to-day job proved to be an invaluable insight, even though each set of minutes only represented one meeting that she had had that day, which occurred in the evening, usually called to order around 7.30 p.m. by the mayor, Donald Cullison. The city council, bless their hearts, they were, hmm, how shall I put it, opinionated. They were an opinionated bunch. And even though council members came and went, the core group stayed basically the same for the period that I researched. One individual was a standout, Marjorie Brown White. Marjorie fancied herself, among other things, an historian. She wrote a book titled 100 Going on 200 that commemorated Reed City's centennial in 1975. I purchased a copy at the old Rugged Cross Museum in Reed City, Mrs. Brown White's life deserves a book in and of itself, but for our purposes, she was the council member who wasn't afraid to point fingers and name names in the middle of a televised council meeting. At one point, those fingers were being dramatically pointed at Marion Fisher. But before we get to that, 
we must go back almost a year prior to the murder in order to set the stage. The monthly meetings were full of what you'd expect, street lights that needed fixing, citizens coming to air a gripe or two, property assessments, votes on city ordinances, discussions about fluoride in the water, audits of the finances, bids for city work to be done, you know, not exactly riveting stuff. But my curiosity was piqued right out of the box. High drama, only three pages in, and it read like a soap opera. If by soap opera you mean the city manager being summarily ousted in the middle of a meeting. The February 1st, 1982 city council meeting, and now we're about one year before Jeanette's death, began like normal, including things like a long discussion regarding an auditor's report, the previous meeting's minutes were read and approved, and the council went on to discuss local business owners' concerns about the new US-131 expressway. Then Councilwoman White asked one of the other council members why did he not ask for Mr. Ralph Westerberg's dismissal after he made accusations about him in the January meeting. Apparently there had been a question as to how Westerberg had used some personal and or vacation time. Councilwoman White then went on to question Westerberg's authority to hire the new deputy clerk. And then she lowered the boom. Mr. Westerberg has been heard to say the council does not run itself. He runs the council. Councilwoman White further alleged that businessmen had come to her and said, Ralph has to go. Are you saying you are getting reports from business people? Mayor Collison asked. Councilwoman White answered that she was, and then she made the following motion, seconded by Councilman Scarborough. We would be well advised to terminate the services of our city manager as of now, and I so move. Then Councilman Kuhn said, Westerberg does what he thinks is best for the city, but what he does is not always for the city's good. He further stated that it was the council's fault for letting him get away with it. Boy, did I long to know what they thought he'd been getting away with. And while I heard a lot of gossip on the topic, it appears this had been brewing for a while. Nobody on the council had the stones to make a motion to that point. Well, nobody until Councilwoman White found an opening and decided to take full advantage. The mayor was suddenly concerned about who would present the budget if Westerberg was gone, because it was due. After more discussion, a vote was taken, and it carried. Ralph Westerberg was out as city manager. From the minutes, as noted by Marion Fisher, quote, At this time, Mr. Westerberg informed the council that they would have a real group following and that they were the ones who were going to suffer for this. He further stated, As far as this town is concerned, I intend to show you what foolishness you've done. I'm going to put in the paper what goes on in Reed City and what has been done by myself as city manager. Following Mr. Westerberg's statement, Larry Herring, the superintendent of public works, tossed his keys to Mayor Collison, and the mayor then asked if that meant he was resigning. The mayor said that there would have to be appointments made, and then asked for a five-minute recess, after which he reconvened and informed the council that due to the fact that the city manager had been terminated, he was appointing himself and the city clerk, Marion Fisher, 
as acting city managers until a replacement could be hired. And then they went on to complete the meeting as if nothing untoward had just occurred. It didn't take long for the mayor to realize that he could not legally play the role of city manager. In the March 1, 1982 special meeting, Mayor Collison clarified, The charter reads that an elected officer cannot act as acting city manager. The clerk, Marion Fisher, will act as city manager. Motion offered. Councilmans Kuhn and White voted no. Everyone else voted yes. It seems that the same people who would later start pointing fingers at her regarding the embezzlement were not happy with her becoming the acting city manager. I'm not sure why, though. The woman was busting her ass and juggling all kinds of balls, and as far as I could see, she seemed to be good at it. So now Marion was the city clerk, city treasurer, and acting city manager, and that was just the work-related stuff. She had an elderly mother at home, along with a son and a couple of grandkids, Jeanette's son and daughter, who she picked up from school on days when Jeanette and Alvin were at work. Add to that those one or two evening meetings a month, plus church and associated church functions, and it's pretty clear that no dust settled on Marion Fisher. I got a sense that she did not suffer fools well either, based on her dry wit and quick responses in meetings on the occasional times that she was addressed. To say that a lot was going on in Reed City at this time would be a gross understatement. The city was running a deficit. In fact, in May, the Treasury Department sent a letter requesting that Reed City form a plan to lower the deficit in the 81-82 budget. Right before the Westerberg guano hit the fan, the city had been dealing with the fact that their city assessor, a man named Dorman Elder, was about to be forced to resign due to a conflict of interest. Elder was also the county equalizer. How that happened in the first place is anyone's guess, but it does stand out as a big no-no. In fact, according to a Pioneer article dated January 18, 1983, one day before Jeanette's murder, the Reed City City Council voted to turn over to the county, for a short-term basis, the assessing of the city in light of the resignation of former city assessor Dorman Elder. Elder is also the county equalization director. Last year, the county commission had given notice to the city that the county would no longer allow the equalization director or his office to handle the assessor's job. The council also approved the borrowing of $30,000 by the city from an area financial institution at the best possible interest rate to the city. Reed City would actually take out two loans in less than a year to cover operating expenses. Now, one has to ask themselves how a city of only 2,500 people or so gets themselves so far in debt that they need to take $60,000 worth of loans out just to keep afloat. Reed City was heavily in debt by 1983. But we're still in 1982, and Marion Fisher is still acting city manager, and was for a total of six months until the July 14, 1982 meeting, where James Nordstrom was voted in by the council as a new city manager. And boy, did he step into it. His first meeting was a doozy, mainly for how much crap was going on, and the ill will swirling around Reed City for a number of reasons. From the meeting minutes, transcribed by Marion Fisher, quote, 
Upon request from Councilwoman White, the following will be added to the June 7th meeting minutes. Mr. Les Hayboyer suggested various ways to clean up the deficits in the city budget. One of the ways was to check into the fire department new equipment fund. Councilwoman White strongly objected to this. Also noted, Councilwoman White also stated that if we ever change the way we do our fire department business, we'll have troubles galore. She further stated that we have the best fire department in the country. Councilman Marinin stated that he didn't feel that the auditor suggested taking money specifically from the fire department fund, but that he was talking in general accounting terms. Councilwoman Jensen stated that this was a very touchy subject with the fire department, and they felt that money had been taken from their funds when it shouldn't have been. Councilwoman White agreed with this. Then, former city clerk, citizen Patricia Mulligan, took issue with the above statement. She stated that she objected to this statement and had heard this before. She further stated that if you go through the book, everything is itemized. Notes, if it was an appropriation or gives the date of the resolution, the council passed authorizing a transfer of funds or payment of an expense. She further stated that no money had ever been used illegally. If there were any questions, anyone could come to the city hall and check the books. The next discussion was on the proposed fees for the tennis courts. Ken Bisbee came before the council with a petition requesting no fees for the use. Mayor Collison asked Bisbee if he approached the Recreation Committee. Bisbee said he approached Community Ed Department and they had nothing to do with it. He further said that he came to City Hall and was told that the city was responsible for the rates. City Clerk Marion Fisher explained that she had set the rates while acting as city manager and per the minutes of an earlier council meeting, and she set them from figures left by Mr. Ralph Westerberg and had even made them lower than his figures. Bisbee said that he felt these charges were causing tremendous ill will in the community and that, quote, we have too many things around town, both in and out, that have caused ill will. At this time, a man named Gerald Kynitz made an apology to Councilwoman White, Marion Fisher, and Councilwoman Jensen for a statement that was printed in a letter that the fire department had previously mailed out. The letter stated that no council member had objected to the use of the fire equipment funds, as suggested by the auditors. Councilwoman White questioned whether it was proper for Councilman Bartow's wife being the secretary to Jim Thompson, the city attorney. She asked if she would be allowed to get another attorney's opinion. She said she would write to the attorney general to get a determination. City attorney Thompson commented that she might not get an answer from the attorney general. Mayor Cullison stated that if Councilwoman White wanted an opinion from another attorney, it would have to be at her expense. In context, this was right around the time that Prop B was voted down and all the tensions were swirling within the law enforcement community. In the December 20, 1982 proceedings, which would fall within our timeline as the day before the assaults at the Buckboard Bar, the meeting minutes note that a new Reed City police officer is hired, and that would be Officer Mike Primo. He had only worked for Reed City PD for one month before the murder of Jeanette Robertson occurred. During the next meeting, which was held on January 10, 1983, nine days before the murder, City Manager Nordstrom 
asked the council's direction regarding the city hiring an attorney in the event of a possible litigation. This attorney would have to have labor relation experience. After some discussion, it was council's consensus to have the city manager hire a labor relations attorney if the need arose. This was likely with regard to the buckboard bar assault. If the police chief felt that he was going to have to fire an officer, and the officer in question was going to challenge that firing, the city would need an attorney with labor relation experience to handle the situation. At the January 17, 1983, regular meeting, two days before Jeanette's murder, Marion Fisher read a letter of resignation from the city assessor, and then the council unanimously authorized Mr. Nordstrom to go to local finance institutions and check the best possible interest rate that he could get on a $30,000 loan. Then the council went into a closed session. After the session, the mayor said that the discussions were around negotiations between the municipal employees and the city. Then a member of the press stood up and asked Councilman Brooks if he had forgotten about his question regarding a certain municipal employee. Councilman Brooks replied that his question was answered in the standard procedure of the closed session, which, of course, the public, nor the press, were privy to. There were ongoing negotiations regarding municipal employees. The department heads wanted to unionize. But what the press was interested in was the assault that occurred a month earlier in the Buckboard Bar. They were clamoring for more information about the suspended city officer, and nobody was being forthcoming, at least not on the record. This question about the municipal employee and the press being at the meeting was two days before Jeanette's murder. It appears that the council was not interested in pulling that can of worms out in front of a televised audience, legal issues aside, given that the Reed City Police Department had not decided what to do about the officer in question, at least not formally. Two days after this meeting, Jeanette Robertson was murdered in the basement pet department of the Gamble store. The next scheduled council meeting is about a month later on February 22, 1983, and Marion Fisher is taking notes as usual, despite the devastation in her personal life. Her daughter has only been dead about a month. In the months to follow, the embezzlement in the clerk's office came to light. Now there is no telling how long the people in the city office knew about it, or how long they had been scurrying around to figure out how bad it was, and what they could do to mitigate the damage before it became public. What is clear is that the city manager doesn't mention it until his hand is forced by Marjorie Brown White in another dramatic council meeting. Dorothy Critchfield, the former deputy clerk who had worked for Reed City for over 20 years and had only recently retired, was found to have been futzing with the sewer and water books. One has to wonder how the auditors didn't pick up on the inconsistencies, given that the books were audited every year, but it does explain why the city was so far in debt. Not only had she been solely responsible for the sewer and water books for over 20 years, but she was also the secretary for the Anderson Agency, the insurance company for the city. Based on the arrest report, an audit of the books was only done going back as far as 1980. That was when the city went to computerized billing. 
Whatever she may have taken prior to that remains unknown. I can't imagine anyone would believe she just started stealing from the city in the last couple years of her decades-long employment, though. Multiple people I spoke to said gossip around town was that Critchfield was just the fall guy. I have uncovered nothing to suggest that to be the case, but, unfortunately, it was a very short time period that was audited within the investigation done by the Michigan State Police, and whatever investigation Chief Rathbun may have done prior to that is unknown. I asked Detective Pratt about this. Do you know if Chief Rathbun did his own investigation of that embezzlement before turning it over to Michigan State Police? I don't know if he did it or not. I suppose you could get that information. I tried. Apparently, Reed City does not keep records that old. Based on Chief Davis's FOIA response, quote, This incident is beyond the retention period that we have files on record for. It appears this incident was actually handled by the Michigan State Police. I certify no such records are found with our department. What is known is that Critchfield was able to steal a whole lot of money in a short period of time. One wonders how much she was really responsible for stealing from the citizens of Reed City. Now remember, this was all happening just months after the murder of Jeanette Robertson. Her mother was at each of these meetings taking notes, and in the May 23, 1983 meeting, she was also taking pot shots from Councilwoman Brown White. City Manager Nordstrom read correspondence from the Teamsters, State, County, and Municipal Workers, Local 214, regarding a petition for representation for the city department heads. Councilman White said to Marion Fisher, Did you start the union business? Marion Fisher replied, I do not feel I have to give out that information. I find myself asking why Councilwoman White was instigating the woman who had just lost her daughter a couple months ago to an extremely brutal attack in this very city and law enforcement hadn't even caught the guy. Did she believe Marion had something to do with the embezzlement? There is no evidence to suggest Marion Fisher had any knowledge of the embezzlement going on in her office, but that doesn't mean that wasn't the gossip on the street. Councilwoman White was out there quietly telling citizens to scan their sewer and water bills for inconsistencies, so it isn't out of the realm of possibility that she might also suggest to them that the city clerk had a hand in the illegal actions. I was also told there was at least one member of the Reed City Police Department talking smack about Marion with regard to the embezzlement as well. Why would they have been doing that? What information did they have, if any, to be leveling this kind of attack against her? I certainly never uncovered any. In June, the sewer scandal erupted in earnest, and Ms. Marjorie was ready for her close-up. She read from prepared statements that included lines like, the errors are so obvious they could have been spotted by a schoolchild, and I am really personally horrified that they were not spotted and reported to the mayor and council immediately. Marion Fisher prepared these minutes, so you have to wonder about her mood when she typed this. Councilwoman White, at this time, held the printout sheets of Ward 1 up one by one for the television camera. 
her daughter had been dead for a little over six months. She continued to show up for work every day and for the flurry of meetings at night, and there she was being publicly, and not very subtly, accused of gross incompetence at the very least, and at worst, knowledge and or participation in the embezzlement by a member of the council. It really is rather stunning when you look at it all in context. In the ensuing months, the city council soldiered on as did the Jeanette Robertson murder investigation. At the end of 1983, Dorothy Critchfield was found guilty of one count of felony embezzlement, sentenced to one year in jail, five years probation, 200 hours of community service, and ordered to make monetary restitution in the amount of $42,496. That's how much she embezzled in the last couple of years of her employment. Imagine how much more she could have gotten away with over her 20 years working for the city. The possibilities are staggering. I was told that it got so bad for Marion during this time that a local banker named Mr. Andresen offered to get her a lawyer if she needed one. In the end, I never uncovered anything to suggest that Marion Fisher had any knowledge of the embezzlement whatsoever. To this day, I wonder about the intent of those pointing fingers. I think it's worth noting that not a single time in the hundreds of pages that represent the next two calendar years of Reed City City Council meetings was her daughter Jeanette's brutal murder ever mentioned. Nothing about beefing up security at the local businesses, nobody asking how the investigation was going. Not a single word. Not once. 